I would almost say we begin today, but it's uh, actually the continuation, the second half. We've had a, discuss on, a discussion on the ascetical sandwich. This is the Sunday school sandwich, in which the one half was the beginning of the Holy Family, and the second half is the end of the Holy Family, and in the middle was asceticism. So we've done asceticism through the season of Lent. We've had a, a little Easter break. And now we're on to the second half of the Holy Family. You may recall that we were actually supposed to have four sessions of the Holy Family in the month of January, except for there was a snowpocalypse. Uh, <laughs> and it shut everything down, and the whole world shut down for a little while for snow. Would you mind lowering that uh, thing there? It's, it's a little bright. And uh, so we're actually... We're not even going to catch up. We're just going to keep going at our continual pace and we'll end whenever we end. But uh, we're going to have to do a little bit of a review because it's been a while since we've uh, been talking about this course, The Holy Family, of which we've only gotten through three sessions. So we'll begin with prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people, enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, the Holy Family. A quick review. You recall, as we typically do, we began at the beginning with Adam and Eve, after asking the question, uh, and, and my thing is on a weird screen now, so I have to read tiny print. After asking the question, why are we talking about the Holy Family in the first place? And the first reason I would say is because family is at the heart of reality. And if you don't believe me, uh, you're wrong. So <laughs> Before ever there was an Adam and an Eve, which was a family, there was a Father, a Son, and a Holy Ghost, and there is no beginning to that family. That means family is at the heart of reality, a Father, and a Son, and a Holy Ghost. When he creates, he creates in his image and likeness, not only in the individual, but in the family, because When the man is alone in the Garden of Eden, it is not good. The first thing that's declared to be not good is that one person is alone with no community and no no family. Uh, We ought to also study family since it's the heart of reality because reality is currently being questioned. And I don't simply mean family is being questioned, which is absolutely the truth. But the whole, I think the reason family is being questioned is because it's at the heart of reality and reality is being questioned. Is there such a thing as anything at all is the question. Why can't we do whatever we want to do since there, nothing is real in the first place? That's the big, real big question. You remember, um, long, not a long time ago, but we have covered over several courses this distinction between what has been called nominalism and realism. It's an important distinction and it, it really is being played out in, our, in the culture surrounding us. Uh, the notion of nominalism versus realism. 
Nominalism is the, well, let's start with realism. Realism is the idea that things have an essence in themselves. They have a being. They have, let's say, a, a created nature within themselves, whether you give it a name or not, whether you call it by a particular name or change the name of it, doesn't matter. It has an essence to itself. Nominalism is the notion that things do not have an essence in themselves except what name you assign to them. And so uh, if, if everyone, even if everyone doesn't universally discern that an orange is an apple, if you discern that an orange is an apple, it's an apple. And that's it. Because in it, of its own essence, there is no orangeness. There is no appleness. Only what you give the name to it, the assigned to it. So this is, you can easily see this playing out in our culture as people are trying to wrest themselves away from realism and begin assigning to things in the world and in their relationships and in the world whatever they want to assign to it. And who's to tell me what to assign to it? I'll tell you what I'll assign to it. I always say, though, realism, uh, uh, let's say... The fact that we're all actually realists takes place uh, or is illustrated best on Woodruff Road because you are real on Woodruff Road. If you decide that oncoming traffic is not oncoming traffic, it doesn't matter. You will be, you will be hit. That's an illustration of a deeper reality that pervades all ideas, except you don't wind up in a head-on collision and in the hospital with the other ideas. You wind up in a culture war, or it's called a culture war, but I think it's actually just a, a, a discussion about reality. So if we're going to get real, or keep it real, <laughs> let's start talking about the family. The family orients you in the world, and even a broken family orients you. Even a disorienting family orients you, okay? Uh, here we have a picture of a negative, a photo negative, back when we had photo negatives. Anyone who remembers that? <laughs> um, and we think about Adam and Eve, first of all. Uh, Scott Hahn has a, has a book that we're following, not, not really, but we're just using periodically. He's, he writes that the human creature must be a family before it can be fully God's image. Alone, he could not fulfill his purpose in creation. God is not solitary, so man could not be solitary. So Adam is created and Eve is created out of him shortly afterwards, and together they fully image the, uh, their creator. Um, but there's something before long that, that winds up giving us this via negativa or photonegative image of God. Adam is not supposed to subdue Eve. Eve is not supposed to oversee Adam. They together replenish the earth. That's, that's uh, the original picture of that Garden of Eden. Uh, as we're reviewing the Holy Family here, you can't quite uh, get away from the fact that the fall is going to play a role in this Edenic real reality and in Eden, at the fall, we recognize that the order that God creates and builds into things is reversed. And introduced is chaos into the order of Eden. Whereas before there was 
physical peace, now pain has been introduced, whereas before the, the earth produced her goods for us to just take from them, now there is labor. Uh, where there was Adam and Eve unfallen, there is Cain and Abel, just one generation down, murder is introduced. Lamech, son of Cain, is the first to take two wives. <clears throat> He's the first to threaten murder for anyone who insults him. So he's not, this is not eye for an eye, tooth for tooth even. Uh, this is worse. Lamech gets even worse than Cain and Abel before or after which we have a flood. And the Lord says, this is going too fast, too far. Let's start this over again. That's a confusing period. But anyhow... Uh, we're talking about the fall and how this affects the idea of the, of the holy family. Uh, and, and we've seen that the family begins with Adam and Eve, and by the time they have children, they're killing each other. And by the time, by the time those children have children, they're taking multiple wives and reprogramming the family and killing uh, uh, for being insulted. And uh, it's a mess. Uh, who is preserved on the ark in the flood, by the way? The family is preserved. Uh, Noah's family. We followed then the patriarchs. And this is where we introduced the idea of via negativa, for sure. Uh, the patriarchs and via negativa, the idea of the negative way is that even in a broken family, the nature of the broken family, the part that hurts you, is what? That it's not unbroken. That brokenness is the part that hurts. Why does it not not hurt to be in a broken family? Because there's a rightness and a wholeness that you're basically wired for. Why didn't I have a good father? Why didn't I have a good mother? Why, why did my so-and-so, why did such-and-such have to die? Why did so-and-so have to die? Why is this broken? It wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be all better if, if what? If they hadn't broken up, if so-and-so hadn't died, if there hadn't been uh, that conflict that produced a split, if all of that hadn't happened, it'd be better. Even a broken family is via negativa, through the negative way, showing you what, what, uh, what the ideal is, in a sense, or what we're really destined for. When we look at the patriarchs, we ask ourselves, well, okay, these are, these are supposed to be, you know the real fathers of God's people. But we wonder, should we imitate Abraham's faith, which is good, or his fear, which caused him to lie and say that his sister was his wife so that she'd be sold into a harem so that he wouldn't be injured himself? Ugh. That's the family? Wait, wait, hold on a second. Which one? Okay, Abraham's faith. That's the good one, right? But you see, there's a, it's, a, it's a muddled picture now. Uh, you can't quite look at the icon, Abraham, and see... Uh, the, the, the holy family through him. You can see part. Uh, should we obey, uh, uh, should we imitate Sarah's obedience in following Abraham or her laughter that God could give her a son? Uh, laughter is not so hot. Um, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, right? <laughs> she turned that around and said, God, uh, when he tells me his plans, I laugh at him. And that's not so funny in the end. Uh, Rebecca and Jacob, they had some wisdom, but they also were tricking Isaac and sort of cheating and kind of stealing. Uh, 
And that's not so hot. <laughs> Which one do we imitate? Rachel. Uh, now, she was uh, a fantastic mother of the people of God. On the other hand, she was also jealous, a little vindictive, uh, and uh, sending Hagar and Ishmael out into the desert to die. That's, she just wanted them dead. Ooh. Uh, she was also patient. And so we look at these uh, patriarchal figures and their families and we say, it's not, quite, it's not quite perfect, but you're seeing something here. A faithful father in Abraham, uh, a, uh, a father who blesses his sons in Isaac, uh, eventually a penitent Jacob who takes the name Israel. Uh, and when we look at this, uh, this patriarchate, of the, of the people of God, we look at how by the time of Christ they were leaning on that idea that I am a son of Abraham, I am a son of Abraham, and Christ himself reminds them and says, do not think to say within yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Ooh, well then we better get down to the essence of what it is to be in the family of God if just being called the son of Abraham doesn't cut it with Jesus, the son of God, uh, we find that, therefore, in, the, in Adam and Eve, there was something perfect. It was broken. And in the, the history of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, we find inklings. We find, uh, you know, a, a broken image, but an image nevertheless when we consider the Holy Family, we move on to our, our, beyond our review and on to the session for today. We're moving to the era of the kings, okay? And we're going to think about the families of the kings. Unfortunately, if you thought that the patriarchs or Adam and Eve or, or uh, Cain and Abel were a bit of a mess, oh, get ready. Get ready for the kings. And we're only going to do the first three kings, uh, the kings of the undivided kingdom, that would be Saul, David, and, and uh, Solomon. We're only going to do those three. When you get into the ones that follow them, it gets even worse. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, first of all, <clears throat> how did we ever get to this point where there's a king? Because there weren't always kings in the people of God. There was a time at which the people themselves cried out for a king, saying, we want a king. This is, by the way, an icon of Samuel. You see the horn there. This is a horn filled with oil that he would anoint the king with. He doesn't look like a friendly fellow either. But anyhow, before the first king of Israel, there were judges. Uh, of course, you look in the, in the book of Judges, you'll find all about it. Samuel himself uh, was a judge, a priest, and a prophet. The people saw Samuel's sons. And this is, by the way, not an uncommon thing for the sons of the priest to be rotten. Sorry, Jonas. But <laughs> <laughs> or try, we're praying for you. But, uh, so the, son of, the sons of Samuel are rotten. And the people looked at that and said, oh boy, what is our future? You know, everyone else has a king. And uh, we feel sheepish when we go up and face these other nations because we have these judges, but... You know, it'd be really nice if we had a king, a real strong man to lead us. They wanted a king to be just like all the other nations. 
First uh, Samuel 8, 7, Sam, uh, Samuel is not happy with their call for a king because what it means is rejection. He feels rejected himself as a judge. And God says, oh, don't worry. They're not rejecting you. The Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Ooh, that hurts. We're talking about family here again. God is wanting to be the father over these people. And they're saying, no, we want to be just like everyone else, all the pagan nations all around us. We don't want to be led by these prophets. We want a king. And the Lord says, typically in your own spiritual life, whatever you want, you can have. (laughs) Now, if you're really itching for separation from God, he'll try to convince you otherwise. But if you want it, you got it. Okay? It's not a good thing. But he said, they say we want a king. And uh, he says, you can have your king. But yet, saying to Samuel, yet protest solemnly unto them and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. Okay, what's the first warning that God gives them about this king? It has to do with family. Tell them, he will take your sons. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, his horsemen, etc. He will take your daughters. He'll take your daughters and make them uh, confectioners, is one translation, but it's not candy, it's perfumers. And uh, to be cooks and to be bakers. Basically, he'll take, he'll take your daughters, you'll be living out in some hovel somewhere, and he'll take them in and make them servants to bake him bread and to make him uh, smell good. And you'll be at home by yourself, wondering what happened to my son and what happened to my daughter. Uh, It's interesting that the Lord's warning for the people of God about this king is he will take your sons and he will take your daughters. And they say, no matter, we want a king. All right. Okay. Uh, He says, here's your king, Saul, the first king. Um, Saul is chosen by God. He's not... uh, chosen by Samuel. He's chosen by God and anointed by Samuel, the guy with the big horn of oil. He is anointed by Samuel. And since Moses, here is the first father figure over the whole people of God. The patriarchs were father figures over their literal sons. Uh, In Egypt, Moses becomes a father figure over the tribes. Now it's a people. Since Moses, I would say, and those judges, here's the first father figure over the whole people of God, Saul. Are we going to see the image of Christ, the king, in Saul? Sort of. First of all, let's look at his family. Saul marries Ahinoam, has six kids, including the ones that we know about, Uh, the, the famous ones, I should say. Jonathan, and I've heard this pronounced different ways, Michal, because it's a girl, it's not Michael, uh, Michal, wife of David. Um, Saul disobeys God and the anointing is removed. That's a story in itself. Um, when David's rivalry begins, Jonathan and Michael side with David. We already see the flies starting to gather, the buzzards starting to circle. His son has turned against him. His daughter 
has turned against him. Here's the family of Saul after having turned from God. Now, you can, you can turn from God and have God remove your position from you, and you can still save it. Not your position, but your relationship with God. This always used to bother me about Saul, because I thought Saul was utterly condemned for not completely slaying their enemy, including their king and their women and their sheep and all their children. I thought he was condemned to hell for not doing that. But really, if you read closely, it's, it's the, the kingdom was removed from him. He had a chance to respond to that either properly or improperly. Saul makes a serious mistake, though, and decides, when God decides that his time as king is over, he loses. Now what, Dad, is, uh, is what is said. So, Dad, how can I be a loser? Okay, <laughs> here's how. A good dad could have humbly accepted the judgment for the error that he made. Uh, King Saul instead tried to find a way to continue to hold on to his power without God. He went to start consulting uh, witches since he no longer had the spirit of God on him. He figured maybe if I consult a witch, he consults a witch and a witch brings up for him from the dead Samuel and Samuel tells him what God would have told him anyway. Ah, (laughs) it's not a good scene for Saul. Saul becomes angry. Saul starts trying to kill uh, David to, to keep this power from being wrested from his hand. And in the end, his life ends in tragedy, a sort of suicide and shame. Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands, is the song that the people would sing as Saul is superseded by the one who's coming after him. And so we're going to have a family meeting. Okay, there's a lot you can say about Saul. A family meeting about King Saul. You can easily ask questions like these. When we see this first king, where is the king who bravely accepts his fate? He's not there. Via negativa, right? Uh, Where is the father who considers his children first? You can't see him in Saul. You see the opposite. Via negativa. Where is the anointed one from whom all power and authority of the kingdom is not torn away? You can't see it in Saul. And so when you see this king, this first king... We know there's a king coming, but this cannot be him because he doesn't fit the bill of a godly king. There's a bunch of ungodly things here, but there's a picture starting to emerge. Just like if you're from a broken family, the reason it hurts is because there's somewhere there's a right that that has been wronged. And that right is what we long for. This is what's being longed for here when we look at this story of Saul. But who is it that this, is this king that's going to accept that fate, consider his children first, and not have any kingdom torn away from him? It's Christ. That's the only king you're going to get, that you're going to be rejoicing in. But the next king is King David. King David marries Michal, uh, Saul's daughter. And you'd say, well, there you go. You're married. Now you settle down. You have a nice life. Wait a minute. He married Michal and 
Ahinoam, Abigail, Makah, Haggith, Abital, Egla, and just for fun, Bathsheba. <laughs> and he has 19 kids, not counting the children of his concubines. So how's that holy family looking now? It's starting to get a little... Wait a second. <laughs> you think that's bad? Wait till, wait till Solomon. Uh, with Bathsheba, dad... Commits theft, deceit, adultery. I don't know if you can commit cowardice, but it was a very cowardly act. And murder. Is he worse than Saul? Uh, You could make a case, if you're a lawyer, you could make a case that he's worse than Saul, what Saul did. But for whatever reason, God does not take the throne from David. Accepts his repentance. If you want to read about it, read Psalm 51. You can find the repentance of King David. But are we, are we seeing the, the foreshadowing of Christ emerging? It's hard to see. Um, there are some elements. Let's have our family meeting with King David. There's some things. Here's a father. He's brave and victorious in battle sometimes. He's faithful and worshipful sometimes. He's humbled in his defeats sometimes, penitent in his sin when he's really nailed to the wall, and he mourns his errors, that's true. But this King David, where, uh, leads us to a question like this, where is the father who's faithful to his wife? Where is that dad? <laughs> where is that figure, we're looking at Christ, of course, here on the right, where is that figure who takes a bride And when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, oh, he means that. Um, We're not going to find it in David, really. Where is the shepherd who doesn't lose his sheep? He's David the shepherd. He winds up, if you read his whole story, losing plenty of sheep. Where is the father who is not drenched in all the blood of his enemies? (laughs) Why can't King David build the temple? The Lord says, you're a man of war. You're soaked in blood. Um, You're not going to be building this temple. Your son will do it. Um, Via negativa, you're seeing in King David inklings of a king that's coming. But just like I say, like a broken family, there's something that you're not seeing that's making you long for it more. Um, it's making you long for Christ more when you see David, even though David is, in God's eyes, a little bit better than Saul. Now, David and Bathsheba have a son, and his name is Solomon. Solomon has a great start. David had a great start. Saul had a great start. Solomon's start, even as king, is pretty good. Okay, Solomon, son of David and Bathsheba, was renowned for his wisdom, which was the first request that he made of God. If I'm going to rule this kingdom, I'm going to have to be wise. He could have asked for anything. He asked for wisdom, and the Lord was very pleased at such a request. God was pleased and granted it to him, and along with his wisdom came everything else that anybody could ever ask for. You know, if you had three wishes, oh, I wish to win the lottery... Uh, He says, wisdom, 
And he says, oh, take the lottery too. That's what the Lord says to Solomon. Take the lottery. Wisdom was such a good request. Uh, you get the lottery too. And he becomes one of the most uh, opulent uh, kings in the ancient world. One of the wonders of the world in a sense. But in time, he began to reject his own wisdom. That, that's a, a hard story to hear. In a sense, as we see in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is calling to him, but she wasn't the only one calling. Okay, So when King Solomon has a choice of who to listen to, amongst all the voices he hears, son of David and Bathsheba marries Naamah, an Ammonite. And she's the only one that's given a name. Okay? Because he and his family decides to marry 700 other wives and 300 concubines. If you do some quick math, that's a thousand. <laughs> and the scriptures say, I didn't include this, but the scriptures say he kept them all for love, out of love. He loved them all so much. <laughs> Impossible. <laughs> that's not possible. <laughs> Those women formed a town of their own. He was the mayor of this town, let's say. 700 other wives. You can see how the, the image of Adam and Eve is, is dissolving out into the ether now. There are inklings here of a king that's to come. But if we ask ourselves, okay, Solomon, you've got 700 wives and 300 concubines. Are you happy now? You ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes 2, 8 through 11. Uh, I got me servants and maidens, the delights of the sons of men, and whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. Goodness gracious. We need a family meeting. Uh, So we have a family meeting with King Solomon. There's a lot of questions that could be asked here. But uh, first of all, we look at this and we see um, Jesus as king, as father, as groom to the bride. At the end of all of this, he is crucified for his bride, but there is no vanity and vexation of spirit in the kind that Solomon has. Solomon tried by heaping pleasure upon himself to come to a final reality, and he comes to nothing. Vanity of vanities, chasing after the wind, there's nothing here. Christ, as one who takes a bride, suffers for the bride and finds the exact opposite. He finds uh, the kingdom of God. But Solomon... Solomon was convinced by his pagan wives, of course he'd marry anybody apparently, Uh, pagan wives convinced him to worship pagan gods, even Molech, if if you know that name, who required child sacrifices, and child sacrifices of your own children, that's Molech. Talk about Solomon falling far from the wisdom of the beginning of his time and his reign. Solomon loved wisdom, but not completely. He loved God, but not completely. Solomon loved his wives, but not completely. We can ask these questions. Where is the one who loves with his whole heart? 
And where is the one who loves with his whole soul and his whole mind and all his strength? It wasn't King Saul. It wasn't King David. And by the end of King Solomon's life, it certainly was not King Solomon. Where is the groom? Where is the true groom and the true bride? It's interesting to find uh, in King Solomon's last book of wisdom attributed to him is Song of Solomon. And Song of Solomon is, uh, let's say, a, a graphic novel. No, it's, it's graphic in its sensuality. But most of the church has read Song of Solomon as the story of Christ and the church. This is a marriage and a betrothal, a romance of the, bride, the true bride and the true groom. And by the end of it, we've eliminated Solomon. We don't even think about Solomon anymore. If you read Song of Solomon the way the church does, Solomon, it doesn't play a role. It's Christ and his church. It's, a, it's a, an incredible piece of fruit that comes out of the life of Solomon. But it really gets, it, speaking, of, speaking of things being uh, vanity and vexation, if you tried to make Solomon your um, model, there's your vanity and vexation of spirit. You have in store for you the book of Ecclesiastes in your life. But if you can read Song of Solomon the way the church has always read Song of Solomon, there it is, that light shining in the Old Testament, that uh, hope, that type, um, that shadow that will be fulfilled in Christ. The Holy Family, uh, speaking of the families of the kings, there's a lot more you could say about the family of the kings, but my, my, my sort of strain that I'm following through with these prophets, I mean not the prophets, but the patriarchs and the kings, is that if you're looking to Abraham, you're not going to find it. You'll find something. If you're looking to Isaac or to Jacob, Israel, you'll find something. If you're looking to the kings, you'll find some. But you're not going to find what you're looking for until you see the fulfillment of these. Um, any comments on this section of the Holy Family or the whole discussion? But, but all the, the talk about the kings thus far. Yes, sir. Well, yeah, is it true that King Solomon, like, uh, at the end of his life, became obsessed with witchcraft or whatever, and he was kind of taken away? You're thinking of Saul. So Saul, by also, the... Oh, it could be Solomon, too. I suppose, yeah, he's well, sacrificing like, I his... Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I trust what I read online. Like, it's oh. not... I don't, I've never read that in the Bible or whatever. I don't know if, like, was hmm. Solomon good at the end of his life? Did he... That's a good question. Um, I don't know. If, I don't know uh, uh, God's perspective on Solomon, and I don't recall a verse that says at the end Solomon uh, all, everything was well. But I know that if you've married seven hundred wives and many of them are pagan, and you followed them into pagan religions, then you're into witchcraft. That's for sure. The idea of sacrificing a child to Molech is witchcraft. Wait, did he? Did he actually do that? That's what the scriptures say. Yeah, he was sacrificing to Molech. Now, the only reason you'd sacrifice to Molech is to appease a wrathful God and hopefully gain prosperity, as if he wasn't prosperous enough already. That's the reason you, that people sacrificed to Baal, is they figured Baal was in charge of fertility. 
And so we'll give Baal anything he wants so that he'll give us a crop this year and maybe a couple of sons. That's the nature of, of witchcraft. It's the nature of black magic is forcing spiritual entities to do what you want them to do, which is not really the same as prayer, is it? <laughs> uh, but yeah, if, if you're speaking of that, I would say, yeah, I would say Solomon's in trouble, but Saul was in trouble too. Saul was consulting witches and, um, and it was basically because he had sensed that God had departed from him and he was not following God's will. He wanted that sense of guidance, that sense of comfort, and he received none. Um, but he did pursue it elsewhere, other than in God. Um, any other thoughts about the kings? There's plenty more to talk about with their families. But that's all I, I was going to tackle today. Um, going back to sort of broader, uh, you're about Adam and Eve. Uh, the way I'm reading it and seeing it, it seems to me that Adam was meant to be a priest and a king. Yeah. Um, and that's the image and archetype for, for men. All men are called to be kings and priests by their families. Right. Um, so that's sort of like hardwired into our DNA. It's hardwired into you to, uh, into your family anywhere for the father to be something like a king and a priest. And I don't know that anyone has been so silly as to believe that their father was a perfect father who, uh, who imaged entirely the, the, the lordship and the priestly and even prophetic nature of Christ. But you saw something, right? You, there was something there in that father figure. And you try to forget the other part. But there was one part there that was right, you know. And then when you have a chance to become a father yourself, you say, I'm going to do the very best I can. And your children look at you and they say, pretty good, you know. All right. I mean, not perfect, but I, I do see that, you know. Hopefully there's something they see and say, I think I see something there. And when I'm a father, I'll, I'll do my very best. And their kids will say, ah, you know, sort of. But anyway, there's a via negativa in all of our families uh, we're, we're moving towards the Holy Family. Um, but really what we're talking about, in, even in the Holy Family, is the Trinity. Where this is the familiar relationship that is flawless. That we've never actually experienced in our interactions and friendships and, and all. We've never actually interacted with a perfect family. If you've ever been disappointed, it's when you thought you've met a perfect family and then you got to know them really. And then you go, oh, this again. Yeah. Anyway, uh, this is what we're moving towards and even talking about the Holy Family. Uh, something else? Or? I was just going to say, because um, after the fall, that idea of priest and king got corrupted, that now Adam and men try to subdue women. Subdue. over men, so there's a conflict. But if you look at Christ, what does he do? He dies and sacrifices himself. Right. That's the image of priest and king. And... Um, all people get upset because we believe in male priesthood. But if you look at Adam, it wasn't good for him to be alone. He had a right, even though he was the priest. Right. So there's a way that Eve is necessary for Adam to perform his function as well. Correct. It's a family. You cannot get away from family. There's no way. 
Uh, it doesn't matter what you think about families. You were born into one, and you had no choice. You're in it now. Well, the moment you get in this world, you're in a family. Sorry. Could be broken, could be good, could be mediocre. doesn't matter. You're in a family. And I think there's a message there for us about, uh, about God, about our purpose here, about our destiny. And so that's why we talk about the Holy Family. We'll come back again next week. And uh, next week we're on to... No, actually, next week is morning prayer, sung morning prayer. And then... Uh, is it next week? Yes. yes, thank you very much. Not good with calendars. Next week is Sun Morning Prayer. And after that, we'll, uh, we'll be on to... Uh, I, th- I think we're doing the prophets. It could be Song of Solomon. I have forgotten at this very moment. But you'll know when you get here. <laughs> All right, thank you.